How big is your God? Now, that may seem like a a rather curious or rather peculiar question to be asking in church. But that may be the most important question that you ever answer. Because your answer to that question will determine your future. If you have a God that's smaller than your problems, that's smaller than your challenges, then you're going to be defeated. If you have a small God, you're going to do small things. But if your God is bigger than those obstacles, if your God is bigger than those problems that you see, then you'll have the courage and the ability to overcome it. Now, this is not some self-help mantra about how you can do anything you set your mind to. But if you have a big God... He can do bigger things through you than you can even imagine. If you're new to Grace Point Church this morning, welcome. If you've been gone for a while, welcome back. We spent the last six weeks looking at what we would do differently if we knew we only had one month to live. How we would reprioritize our lives. What we would change if we knew we only had 30 days to live. Now, if we... As, as, as we look at this, you know, we're at, the, we're at the end of this series and we're kind of putting a bow on the message. But I hope you're not putting the principles on the shelf that you've learned. We looked, at, we looked at living passionately, how to be fully engaged in the present without being trapped by the past or paralyzed by the future. We looked at, at loving completely, how to live sacrificially, how to have healthy relationships, how to forgive one another, how to accept forgiveness. And then we looked at learning humbly, how to, how to understand what our passions are. And last week, Mike talked about how to leave boldly, how to leave a legacy. Because you see, our goal is to live intentionally. Not just for one period of nine, time, not just for, for six weeks at a time, not just for a few days. But to live intentionally for every moment of our lives. Now most of us... When we were children, we had great big dreams. Most kids do. They want to be a, a fireman or a policeman or an astronaut or a sports star or a rock star or a doctor or a lawyer. Well, maybe they don't really want to be lawyers. Sorry for you, those of you that are attorneys. But maybe that's not one of their goals. But when we're big, we have big dreams. And we really believe, when we're small, we, have, we really believe that we can be those things. But at the end of the day, it's not how big your dreams are. It's whether you're living God's vision for your life. Today, we're going to talk about living with no regrets. In 1776, there was a young man named Nathan Hale. He was arrested by the British, uh, convicted of being a spy, and he was about to be hanged, 21 years old. And if you remember your history books, You remember he uttered a famous phrase, asked him if he had any last words, and he said, I only regret that I have but one life to give for my country. 1,700 years earlier, the Apostle Paul had a similar sentiment. He was writing to his protege, Timothy, and Paul was actually writing from a a Roman jail cell, and ultimately he was going to be executed from that jail cell. He knew the end was near, and he wrote to Timothy and In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6, 7, and 8, he said, For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, 
and the time for my departure is near. I fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Now those are the words of a man that was living with no regret. But what's keeping us from living a life of no regret? See, I think it comes down to one simple word, and that is risk. We want life to be comfortable and predictable. But my experience is, and I think Scripture teaches, that following God is usually not comfortable, and it's not usually predictable. I believe that obeying God is going to require you to take some uncomfortable risks. Because God works most powerfully in us when we're at the very end of our comfort zone. So what are you not willing to risk to deepen your relationship with God? Are you not willing to risk your lifestyle, your job, your things, your family? What's more important to you than Jesus? How big is your God? If you would, you can turn to Matthew chapter 25, and we're going to get there in a few moments. But while you're turning there, I want to tell you a story about how I came to Grace Point Church. Now, I'm a little bit reluctant to tell you this story because I'm afraid that you're going to think that I'm trying to bring attention to myself and really nothing is further from the truth. Please hear my heart on that. I just want to share with you what no regrets has looked like in my life over the last year and a half or so. I'm also somewhat hesitant to tell you this story because all I'm going to be giving you is a series of snapshots. And when you see a series of snapshots, the end result looks like a foregone conclusion. When you see the series of snapshots, you go, oh, well, obviously this was going to be the conclusion. Well, let me tell you, as a guy that was living through it, the conclusion wasn't quite so obvious. It was really a roller coaster. And so as we follow God, there may be times where we, it's, not, it's not just a straight line. Eighteen months ago, I was sitting in a service just about like this one, and I heard a quote that caught my attention. And I frankly don't remember anything about the message. I don't remember the message at all. But I remember that quote, and I think it applies to our One Month to Live study. And the quote was this. There comes a time in every man's life when he must prove what he believes by what he does. There comes a time in every man's life when he must prove what he believes by what he does. Two days later, the company that I'd worked for for 30 years announced a downsizing that eliminated my position. And so here I was. I, I figured that I was going to retire from IBM. I figured that we would live in Tulsa for the rest of our lives. But I now believe that God allowed that whole set of circumstances to happen because God knew that if he didn't stir me out of my comfort zone, I'd never do all that he had planned for me. So three months go by, I'm interviewing for some jobs, and in my daily devotional, I ran across this. It says, the most dramatic changes in your life will come from God's initiative, not yours. Abraham, Moses, David, Mary, the disciples, 
the Lord may be initiating some new things in your life. And when he tells you what his plans are, trust him and walk closely with him. And I thought, well, that's, that's interesting. But I figured that with my background and my connections and my experience, it wouldn't be long before I found a job in business, doing the same kind of work that I'd always done. But two more months passed. And the opportunities that I thought I had had kind of evaporated. And I didn't really see too much more on the horizon. I was getting rather frustrated. And God led me to Job chapter 38. And if you know Job, you know that the whole story of Job, that God, Job questions God about why did all this happen to me. And God kind of gave him a, a new perspective on that. And then God did the same thing with this passage in Job chapter 38, the first three verses. He says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Where were you when I set the oceans in their place? Where were you when I put the constellations of stars in position? Man, you read that and it gives you a whole new perspective. Now, during this whole time, I'd had some friends and family that advised me. He said, you know, this downsizing may be the opportunity for you to pursue what you're really passionate about. Now, I was good at my job, but admittedly, I was never passionate about it. I just saw IBM as God's way of funding what I was passionate about, which is missions and discipleship and, and, and teaching. And I couldn't see how God was going to arrange, orchestrate things to allow me to, to have a position that would allow me to do fully what he had wired me to do. Because, see, my perspective was, listen, I don't have any significant church connections. I don't have any formal seminary education, not to mention the financial impact of going to work for IBM to whatever you end up wor working in, in ministry. I couldn't see how it was going to happen. But in early November of last year, so it's almost exactly a year ago now, I first found out about Grace Point Church. And I looked on the website, I was praying through that, I was really excited, I found out about an opportunity, the position that I now have. A couple of days after finding out that, about that, before I, but before I'd ever contacted Mike, in my daily devotional, in Henry Blackaby's devotional book, I ran into this. The title of the devotional was, Don't Avoid the Impossible. And it said this, it said, the key difference between what appears to be impossible to us and what is actually possible is a word from our master. Faith accepts his divine command and steps out in a direction that only God can complete. Take inventory of your life and the decisions you are now facing. Have you received a word from the master that awaits your next step of faith? If you'll proceed with what he has told you, no matter how incredible it might seem, you'll experience the joy of seeing your Lord perform a miracle and so will those around you. I thought, wow. So I contacted Mike, my first discussion with Mike. I said, listen, I don't have any seminary education. His response was, passion is a lot more important to me than education. He said, send me your resume. Now, what he didn't know at the time, in fact, he may not know until right now, is that I did not have a resume for ministry. I had my business resume, but I did not have a resume to apply for a position at a church. So I had to look back over the last 15 years of what I'd been doing as a church leader, as a missions leader, as a disciple maker, and as a teacher, and, and put together a resume. Now, what's interesting about that, <clears throat> I got my ministry resume together, and I got my business resume together, and I looked at them, and my ministry resume looked a whole lot better than my business resume. 
And I thought, well, that, that, that's just amazing. I, I, I was stunned to see that. So I ended up coming over here and talking to Mike and actually had a couple of interviews with a couple of deacons. Fast forward to January of this year. I was still waiting to hear from Grace Point Church. I was still uh, interviewing uh, for other jobs. But I was in a real quandary because I didn't know whether God was leading me to pursue this ministry opportunity or to keep doing what I'd always done, which is work in business and do ministry on the side. I didn't know, and I was really struggling with that. I didn't know what the timing was going to be. What if this one comes first? What if this one comes first? Which way should I go? I had to ask a couple of really close friends. I said, listen, I want you to pray for me. And I rather boldly asked, I said, I don't only want you to pray for me. I want you to tell me what God's telling you about my situation. Try that on for your, see how many friends you got. Um, And so they did. January 16th of this year, one of my friends texted me Isaiah 55. And I texted back, I said, yeah, and? He said, just go read it. So I went and read Isaiah 55. Now, it may surprise you that there's actually some passages in Isaiah 55 which are probably pretty familiar to you. There's the passage in Isaiah 55 where it says, where God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are higher than your ways. And I thought, I love that passage. But it doesn't, it's not ringing my bell for this situation. Isaiah 55 has the, has the passage that says, my, when God said, my words will, re, will go out and will not return void. That's another great passage, but that's not what caught my attention. Now understand, the, <clears throat> excuse me, understand the quandary that I'm in about trying to decide where God would have me and what he wants me to do, really struggling with this. And I ran into a passage that just literally jumped off the page at me. Verse 2 of chapter 55 says, Why spend money on what is not bread, and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me. Eat what is good and your soul will delight in the richest affair. And then understanding the position that I was applying for, the position I have now, three verses later, it says, Surely you will summon nations you know not. Surely nations you do not know will hasten to you because of the Lord your God. And I said, that's it. That's my Bible promise. Hallelujah. Thank you, God, for clarity. That is awesome. The next day, Mike called me and said, Hey, listen, I met with the trustees, and uh, we've had to put that position on indefinite hold because we don't have the money for it. I'm like, well, how does that work? So I went two months without talking to Grace Point. Of course, at the same time, I'm interviewing for other jobs, and, 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 and there came a time when I, based on the way circumstances were working, I was really expecting a call back on, on a job opportunity. And I thought, this could be the week that they call me. And I was... I was sitting there during my quiet time praying about this. I thought, what is going to happen if they call me and offer me a job? Should I take it? Should I not? I mean, I've got this Bible promise. What should I do? And that morning, I had an epiphany. I hadn't had one before. Hadn't had one since. But that morning, it was as clear as a bell. I'm sitting there, and I said, what am I doing? What am I doing? I'm sitting here waiting for the phone to ring with a job offer that I don't even want. What am I doing? So I called Mike and I said, listen, I want to come over here and tell you what, what God's been doing in my life. 
And he told me later that he thought that I was coming over here to say, you know, it's been nice knowing you. See you later. But in fact, what I came over here to tell him was about my Bible promise. I said, listen, and I told him about Isaiah 55. I said, this is the promise that God's given me. But I said, I'm not telling you that Grace Point is the fulfillment of that promise. They may, Grace Point may not be the fulfillment of that promise, and that's okay. You do what God's telling you to do, and I'm going to do what God's telling me to do, and it'll all work out just fine. Because in the two months since the, the time I had my Bible promise and the time this happened, the Bible promise and the epiphany, I suppose, since in that two months, I'd, become, I'd had some realizations. The number one realization is that God is my provision. Not any man, not any employer, not any company. God may use those entities to, to support you or support me, but he, ultimately, God is my provision. I realized that my obedience to God was going to require my total surrender. Now, for me, total surrender meant un- embracing uncertainty. See, ultimately, I had a job offer that would pay me more than twice what I'm making right now and would allow me to stay in Tulsa. The easy thing for me to do was to stay in Tulsa on, on almost every level, relationally, financially, comfort level, on almost every level. But by the time that job offer came, God had so changed my heart that that job in business felt like a jail sentence. I told one of my friends, I said, as I, as I was talking to him about this, I said, it just feels like the death. If I accept that job offer, it just feels like the death of a vision. And he says, well, I think you have your answer. I realized that obedience to God's call was going to require my complete, my complete faith. Now, when did I demonstrate faith? When I was just sitting there waiting for Grace Point to call me? Or when I turned down that job? with nothing else in my hand. My dad used to say, if you have faith in God, you don't need a plan B. I said, well, it's good enough for me, I suppose. Ultimately, Mike met with the trustees and the deacons, and they decided there was enough money to fund the position on a part-time basis. And I'm thinking, I don't remember seeing that in my Bible promise. Where, 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 Where was that in here? But here we are, six months later. We've moved further away from our family. We've left 30 years of relationships. We've moved across the state line. I'm only working part-time. But let me tell you something. We don't regret a thing. God's plan for me is so much better than anything I could have imagined, than anything I could have orchestrated. There's a obscure Rich Mullins song, which kind of summarizes where I am now, and based on the storm like that last night, you'll really appreciate this song. It says, the storm had tossed me until I'd nearly lost my way. Now the night is through and the storm has passed, and everything that could be shaken was shaken, and all that remains is all I ever really had. What I would have settled for, you've blown so far away. What you've brought me to, I thought I could not reach. My encouragement to you is that God's plan for you is so much better than you can imagine. I don't know what challenges you've accepted over the last six weeks in this study, but this I know. If you're living on the basis of logic 
and reason, all you're going to see is how big your giants are. But if you act in faith in the God that created the universe, you'll realize how small your giants are compared to him. If you've seen the movie Braveheart, <clears throat> you know there's a scene in which William Wallace is awaiting his execution, and Queen Isabel comes to see him, and they have a conversation. <clears throat> and in the course of that conversation, William Wallace says, every man dies, but not every man really lives. You know, there's about 7 billion people living on this planet today. How many of them are really alive? How many of them are truly living? Let's bring it a little bit closer to home. There's about 250 or 300 people in this room right now. How many of us are really living? How many of us are really alive? How many of us are living the vision that God has for our lives? How many of us are experiencing the abundant life that Jesus talked about in John 10, 10, when he said, I've come that they might have life and they might have it more abundantly. How many of us are really experiencing that? What's keeping you from living a life of no regrets? See, I think we're afraid that if we follow God, we're going to, we risk losing something. As if God's plan isn't best for us. What are you holding on to that's worth more than Jesus? Is it your pride, your self-sufficiency, your security, your comfort? What are you holding on to that's worth more than Jesus? If you have your Bibles, I told you I'd get here. You just didn't know how long it would take. Matthew 25, we're going to look at a familiar, a familiar passage of Scripture. And Jesus actually describes the kingdom of heaven in terms of risk. In 25, uh, verse 14, he says, It, meaning the kingdom of heaven, will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents of money, to another two talents, to another one talent, each according to his ability. Then went on his journey. The man who received the five talents went at once and put his money to work and gained five more. So also the one with two talents gained two more. But the man who received the one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. Now, to fully appreciate this parable, you need to understand that one talent was the equivalent for a day laborer, a day laborer of about 20 years worth of salary. So the guy that had five talents, he had 100 years worth of wages. Now, I don't know about you. But if somebody gave me a hundred years worth of wages, I don't think that I would ever take a ri another risk as long as I live. And we, as we see this story, it's, it's easy to think that, the, again, the result is obvious. But these guys actually had a lot to lose. But as we're going to see, they had a whole lot more to gain. Look in verse 18, uh, 19. It says, After a long time, the master of these servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five talents brought the other five. Master, he said, you've entrusted me with five talents. See, I gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. The man with two talents also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two talents. See, I gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. So how did Jesus describe these two guys? As faithful. See, I think we have the wrong definition of faithfulness. We think of faithfulness, I believe, as, as maintenance. We think of faithfulness as as holding the fort, or faithfulness is standing firm. Faithfulness is, is maintaining the status quo. But based on how Jesus defined faithfulness in this story, nothing could be further from the truth. 
Faithfulness isn't minimizing risk. Faithfulness is maximizing what you have to the best of your God-given ability. If faithfulness is maximizing risk, how faithful are you? How faithful are you? Story continues in verse 24. Then the man who received the one talent came. He said, Master, he said, I knew you were a hard man, harvesting where you hadn't sown and gathering where you had not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your talent in the ground. See, here's what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. You should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when, at least when I returned, I would have gotten it back with interest. And then skip down to verse 30. He said, throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. These may be some of the harshest words in all the Gospels. And this guy didn't lose anything. He broke even. So evidently, breaking even isn't good enough. This servant was focused on his potential risk, his potential loss. He said, what if I lose what I have? His master said, that is wickedness. What Jesus was saying in this parable is that wickedness is playing it safe. Wickedness is burying your talent in the ground. So how did Jesus' words strike you? What has God given you? How are you investing your time and your treasures and your talent? You may say, but I can't do what God's called me to do because I don't have something. I don't have the time. I don't have the money. I don't have the connections. I don't have the resources, whatever it is. I can't do it because I don't have some of these things. Let me give you a life principle. God will not hold you accountable for what you don't have. God will not hold you accountable for what you don't have. But he will hold you accountable for what you do with what he's given you. God's going to hold you accountable with, for what you do with what he's given you. I don't know where this truth finds you, but songs have a way of articulating emotions and thoughts, and Casting Crowns has a song that talks about the tension that I think most of us wrestle with, the tension between logic and faith, the tension between reason and surrender. And I'm going to read part of this song to you. And it goes like this. It says, how, just how close can I get, Lord? To my surrender without losing all control. Is, is that our objective? To surrender just enough but still maintain some control? And the rest of the song goes on and talks about some contradictions, some oxymorons. See if you see yourself in here. He said, fearless warriors in a picket fence, reckless abandoned wrapped in common sense, deep water faith in the shallow end, and we are caught in the middle. With eyes wide open to the differences, the God who is and the God I want. But will I trade my dreams for his or am I caught in the middle? Does that describe you? Do you say, I want to have deep water faith, but then when you look down, the water's only up to your ankles. I'm only, I'm only walking in the shallow end. Are you willing to trade your dreams for his? What are you holding on to? That's worth more than Jesus. How big is your God? So how can we learn to live a life with no regrets? I'm going to give you a couple of principles, and they're going to sound really simplistic, I know. You could probably come up with these. It certainly wasn't any uh, brainstorm on my, on my part. The first one is know how to prioritize. And this is really the theme of the one month to live, because 
In order to live without regrets, we have to know what to live for. We have to know what's important. If you know the story of Paul, you know that we, he didn't start out too well. He was killing Christians. And then later he was persecuted, he suffered, he was jailed. But as we saw in that previous verse, when he got to the end of his life, he was living with no regrets. There's another passage in, that, in, that Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. He says, One thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining forward to what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Notice that Paul didn't say, One thing I will do, or one thing I'm going to do, or one of these days I'll get around to it. No, Paul said, One thing I do. See, Paul was living and acting in the present. Following God was the priority in Paul's life. If you were to ask your friends and your family, what's the priority in your life, what would they say? When they see how you spend your money, when they see how you spend your time, what would they say is the priority in your life? What are you holding on to that's worth more than Jesus? Second principle is we have to know what to value. Now, there's, a, there's another common story that we, we all know if we've been around church for very long. In Luke chapter 18, there's a young man that comes to Jesus and he says, What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, You know the commandments. You should not commit adultery. You should not murder. You should not steal. You should not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these I've kept since I was a boy. And Jesus heard this. He said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have. Give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. And when the young man heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Now, this story doesn't need a commentary. It's pretty easy to see that this guy valued the wrong things. <clears throat> but the tragedy about this story is that he, this young man failed to take advantage of the opportunities that were given to him. And we usually think of this story in terms of this young man choosing his way of life over following Jesus. And, and certainly that is the context of the story. But is it possible that as Christ followers we're also pictured in this story? Is it possible that this applies to us as Christ followers as well? When we think of missed opportunities, no one ever died saying they spent too much time on their relationship with Christ. No one ever died saying I loved too much. No one ever dies saying, I prayed too much. No one ever dies saying, regretting the amount of money that they gave to spread the gospel around the world, but plenty have died regretting not doing anything. In Matthew chapter 16, another famous passage, Jesus said to his disciples, what good will it be for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their very soul? Let's talk about regrets for a moment. Psychologist Dr. Neil Rose wrote a book and called If Only, and he identified two different kinds of regrets. He said there's, there's regrets of action and there's regrets of inaction. Now, a, a regret of action is something that you wish you hadn't done. When you get through, you go, ah, I can't believe I said that. I can't believe I did that. That's a regret of action. A regret of inaction is something you wish you had done, but you didn't. It's, it's essentially a missed opportunity. I truly believe that the greatest regrets we're going to have at the end of our lives will not be the things that we did wrong. It's going to be not doing the things that we could have done, that we should have done, that we would have done. And that conviction is actually based, is backed up by the, by the research of a couple of social psychologists whose names I can't even pronounce. And their research showed that time is the key factor in what we regret. 
Short-term, we regret action, the things that we do. But long-term, we regret inaction, the things that we don't do. See, there are studies show that over the course of an average week, action regrets outnumbered inaction regrets 53 to 47%, so about even. But over the course of a lifetime, inaction regrets outnumbered action regrets 84 to 16%. In other words, your greatest regrets at the end of your life are going to be the opportunities that you didn't pursue. See, action regrets taste bad. They leave a, they leave a, a bitter aftertaste that lasts a lifetime. Because inaction, I mean, inaction regrets leave a bitter taste that lasts a lifetime. Because inaction regrets leave us asking, what if? Or if only I had done something. So here's my challenge to you. If you don't follow God's leading in your life, if you don't follow God's vision in your life, when you get to the end of the life, end of your life, you're going to look back longingly at the risks you didn't take, at the opportunities that you didn't pursue, at the dreams you didn't seize. Let me tell you something. You have no control over the span of your life. But you do have control over its depth. So how big is your God? Is he bigger than your biggest problem? Is he bigger than your biggest fear? Because that's the difference between running away from playing it safe and chasing after what God's calling you to do. Stop running away from what scares you. Isn't your God big enough to handle it? See, I want to be identified with the guy that, that I want to be identified with those that live with no regrets. I'm going to read for you a treatise that was written by a pastor from Zimbabwe. And as I read this, I want you to do what God's calling you to do. You may want to sit. You may want to stand. You may want to meditate and pray. You may want to stand and worship. You may want to fall on your face before a holy God and ask for forgiveness for selling God short. For seeing giants and obstacles that are bigger than him. This treatise was found in the hut of an African pastor from Zimbabwe after he was martyred for his faith. They went back and they found this in his hut. This didn't happen 200 years ago. It happened in my lifetime. As you leave today, we're going to give you a copy of it to put in your, put in your Bible or, or something where you'll see it. As I read this, you do what God's calling you to do. This is your time to do business with God. I am part of the fellowship of the unashamed. I have Holy Spirit power. The die has been cast. I've stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. I won't look back. I won't let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense, and my future is secure. I am finished and done with low living, sight walking, small planning, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tamed visions, and mundane talking, cheap living, and dwarfed gold. I don't have, I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, prom, promotions, plaudits, or popularity. I don't have to be right, first, tops, recognized, praised, regarded, or rewarded. I now live by faith. 
I lean on his presence. I walk by patience. I lift by prayer and I labor by power. My face is set. My gate is fast. My goal is heaven. My road is narrow. My way is rough. My companions are few, but my guide is reliable and my mission is clear. I cannot be bought, compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, deluded, or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice. I will not hesitate in the presence of the adversary, negotiate at the table of the enemy, ponder at the pool of popularity, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, shut up, or let up until I've stayed up, stored up, prayed up, and paid up, and preached up for the cause of Christ. I am a disciple of Jesus. I must go till he comes. I must give till I drop, preach until all know, and work until he stops me. And when he comes for his own, he'll have no problem recognizing me. My banner will be clear. What's it going to take for you to live a life of no regret?